we are contributing to dignifying the role of women in food security. How can cooks be of influence? What are practical tips for students to get their friends to take action? How can we generate change from a rural community? And finally, how can you get involved with your local food policy? Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tapir. Gergelette. Sacula Ijaia. Food. Change. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, I'm your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast, we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. This podcast is part of a small series dedicated to the Planting the Future Challenge, in which we take a deep dive into our food system and its challenges, get inspired to cook up plant-rich meals, learn about agroecology as a solution and get into action. In today's episode, we'll learn how we can influence people around us in many ways. We'll listen to different perspectives and get super practical tips. To begin with, I visited Joris Weidendijk, Michelin starred chef at his restaurant Rijks in Amsterdam. My name is Joris Weidendijk. I'm born and raised in Amsterdam. Uh, born 50 meters that way, raised 50 meters that way, so now I'm in the middle. Um, Area local. <laughs> yeah, very local. <laughs> and I always knew that I wanted to become a chef, especially when I was like around 16 years old or something. Oh, I really? decided like, okay, I think this is, my, this is my thing in life. Let's ask Joris how chef can impact the community around them. Chefs are not like uh, influencers, like people that think, okay, I will, I will become a chef and so I can have influence on people. But um, the thing is that nowadays the chefs get a lot of attention yeah. and they need to make uh, use of that attention in, in, in a good way. And what is good? I mean, uh, I would never say I'm going to advise people to see what they need to do, but it's really, um, I think, an honor that you can be like a, uh, an inspiration for other people mm-hmm. by the things you do, because it's simple as that. Uh, chefs have their own philosophy, their own vision, their own, their own way of working. There's a vision that people say, for example, it's about only the best and they don't care about sustainability or other things. That is a vision. Yeah. And there's uh, chefs that are more and more interested in uh, sustainability or plant-based cuisine. Uh, and if they become really good at it and they get attention and interviews, they have like... Um, they can be of influence to other people and inspiration to other people. I don't think it's a choice. Mm-hmm. But there are so many events nowadays. There's the social media. Everyone in the world is connected. Uh, it makes the world a small place, actually, especially in terms of communication. And these things travel so fast nowadays. And there's all these symposia all over the world, chefs, mm-hmm. chefs festivals, where chefs get a podium, literally, and can tell one hour about their philosophy. And yeah, I think <laughs> this is a really a thing that, well, when I started as a chef, I don't think it was um, as widespread as, as nowadays. These mm-hmm. chefs were uh, 
food behind a, a, a wall and, and, and kitchens were in cellars and you couldn't see the chefs and, and nowadays you see more and more, and I, I like that, uh, open kitchens. So chefs are not anymore uh, a hidden person, which is a really good thing. So you need to make use of that attention as a chef. Of course, the chef's philosophy translates into the dishes that are served. One of the reasons I interviewed Joris, as an example, is because he made a very special dish. You made a dish with 30 different Dutch bean varieties, which is super interesting for us. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit about this dish. Okay, I will tell you something about it. So... um, For the people that are listening to this podcast right now, we are sitting in Rijks restaurant. That's the restaurant of the Rijks Museum, uh, the National Museum of the Netherlands. And uh, we opened in 2014 and uh, well, we introduced uh, the kitchen of the lower countries, um, the Netherlands, mm-hmm. for example. Uh, so we were in search for the best products that we could find in the lower countries and put it on the menu in a creative way and an accessible and affordable way as well. And that means that you need to research, do, do your research a little bit. And I was very interested in what, what we've been eating in the past, let's say, 2,000 years in the Netherlands. Then I, I found out that you have these, like, these culinary uh, revolutions every couple of hundred years. So let's say 2,000 years ago, ago this was like a, a German country and basically uh, on the menu there were a lot of beetroots and, and buckwheat and later you had uh, the Romans they, they brought a lot of uh, interesting species like coriander and you still can find um, um, traces of coriander uh, in, in Limburg in the south of the Netherlands that went away as well there's like a time that we were only eating a lot of porridges and uh, all of a sudden 300 400 years ago the first products from South America came over. And then beans arrived. We already had um, doperte and tuinbonen, which is, I think, uh, fava beans and um, peas, green peas. Mm -hmm. That's really uh, from, um, well, this side of the world. But most of these beans arrived here, like between two and 400 years uh, before. All these beans have a beautiful history. For example, you have the, the Punk boontje. Uh, so punk um, is you, you show something that you're proud of. For example, a beautiful necklace. Uh-huh. And uh, the, the story behind the pronk bone is that the pronk bean is that they, um, the, the, the Dutch stole it while fighting on boats from the Portuguese. Okay. And it's a beautiful uh, big purple bean with, with uh, dark purple spots on it. Beautiful big bean. So this bean was originally in Latin America and it was yeah. brought here by yes, the Portuguese. Yes, most, and most of the beans, like, <laughs> yeah. let's say 99%. Uh-huh. And nowadays we only eat basically white beans and brown beans. Yeah. But there's so mu- many more varieties. And, and there's the soldier bean. If you hold it like that, it's a white bean and you see a little soldier standing. And there's uh, uh, gray peas and there's uh, a chickpea. is not really a bean, but uh, it's, it is in my list of beans. And... Um, but there's a, a, a lot of them, so I think hundreds. And I thought it was a big inspiration to tell a little bit about the history of, of our food culture. So mm-hmm. I started to think about the dish with um, a lot of different varieties of beans and I decided, okay, I'm going to find 30. 
So I was calling with uh, people that were growing beans. Okay, I would love to work with this, this, and this bean. Yeah, I have them for you. Okay, can you send me, I don't know, 100 kilos? That's very difficult. I have 10 kilos from last harvest. Um, and if you want um, more next year, I might uh, get to 30 kilos max next year. Because what happens if you have a, a bean, you dry it, you can keep it for ages. But the power of the bean, of the sprouting, disappears a little bit. So you need to make the bean strong again. Every year uh, you grow it and, and you sprout it again, it gets a little bit stronger if you continue it every season. Um, so, uh, but if you uh, dry it and you keep it for 10 years in your cellar or whatever, it loses a lot of its power. So it actually takes years to have like a, a solid big production again of a specific bean. So this was a real search with uh, a, a lot of bean growers of authentic old beans. And then the way we served it was like kind of a, a little tartlet, a little boat with um, one of each variety, one of each bean was in that dish, like one, two, three. It was a hell of a job because all the beans had a, a different time of cooking. Um, and a uh, different color and some beans uh, uh, had to cook for 30 minutes others others for th uh, three hours <laughs> um, was a beautiful dish what we did was we went to the table with a, a nice box with all the different beans and you could see all these beautiful different palette colors uh, mm -hmm. and then we said like okay these are 30 different beans that reached the Netherlands in the past 400 years wow. um, this is the story tut, tut, tut. Yeah. and you will get one of uh, one of each variety in your dish and, then, mm. and it's amazing I mean it's not that you taste the different flavors you taste the different structures and you see all the different colors but the fact that I think I love it when um, there's a dish where chefs give so much attention to especially for you that makes for me a dish very special and personal mm -hmm. yeah but then also I think this was super important for the farmers and for the local biodiversity because also as you said like you did all this research and also you had this direct contact with mm -hmm. the farmers and some of these beans were like dried maybe for a few years and they had to mm -hmm. get back to planting them again yes. and also to try to make them stronger and maybe plant them one year, two exactly. years. So that's a yeah. super important Yeah, one. so it took years to, to have the amount of beans. So, so yeah. we could only serve this dish for a couple of weeks and the first time we had it on the menu, year after, a, 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 a few week, weeks more because we had a bigger production. So we needed to grow together with the farmer uh, to mm -hmm. be able to serve it for a longer time. Yeah, amazing. And how was the reaction from the people, the guests of the restaurant? Yeah, it's, it was a really popular dish. And um, uh, yeah, sometimes uh, we're thinking about it to bring it back again. Uh, it's also a lot of work, but that's, yeah, that's what we do and what we love. But uh, people loved it, especially the story and seeing all the, the beans and knowing how diverse actually um, our our world in the Netherlands is because the people don't know. If you go to the supermarket, you see one variety of carrots, one mm. or two varieties of, of dried beans, and um, but there's like hundreds of them. And of course, you don't find hundreds of them in the supermarket, mm. but it's I think it's good to know and to have uh, a more diverse uh, landscape and more diverse agricultural landscape.
we've talked now about a dish uh, focused on beans but I also wanted to ask you um, your opinion about the importance or the role of uh, animal products mm -hmm. in a, a high cuisine restaurant so do you think it's still essential to uh, give animal products a um, central role or do you think we're like shifting towards another trend for sure people are more aware of like the way we keep animals, what it does to our environment. I don't think to make something tasty, you really need animal proteins, but animal pr proteins can be very tasty. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of flavor, I'm not against it. In terms of sustainability, I know what the impact is. And I know that if we use less or in a different way, this product, it's <laughs> one big solution become more sustainable um, mm -hmm. also I know is like setting goals um, to change the world or change the Netherlands or whatever they should be realistic so it's uh, very not realistic to say okay we become vegan with with uh, with everyone don't think it's, a, it's the solution neither mm -hmm. don't think neither that you need uh, animal products to have uh, like a tasty uh, cuisine, mm -hmm. definitely not. You need more creativity because we're not, uh, the know-how is not like uh, as widespread as like, uh, as for example, how to cook a chicken or a steak or like uh, vegetables has, ha have always been seen as a garnish instead of like a proper uh, main ingredient. And that is a big shift that nowadays a celeriac or a beautiful beetroot or a beautiful pumpkin or a beautiful bean mm -hmm. can be the centerpiece of a dish and that's a very good um, trend, I would say. Thanks, Joris. And I have one final question for you. Uh, so I know that you also wrote a book that is called uh, uh, By Baden Dijk Taos. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's about like bringing um, high cuisine also in your homes, right? Yeah, um, just, just good, good cooking <laughs> at home, yeah, I would say. Good cooking at home, yeah, exactly. And so do you have maybe some practical tips for our listeners on how they can prepare some good dishes also without machines. I put a lot of techniques and explanation in the book and there's like two fundamental things that you need to be able to cook. Recognize a good product um, which is not been to a factory, uh, put in a jar or whatever, just like a carrot or a leek roll. Uh, if you buy that you, you need to cook with it. So. Mm -hmm. good finding good products and knowing the techniques so these things if you want to learn how to cook these are the two things you need to focus on if you want to become like an excellent cook then you can the next step is focusing on flavor mastering flavoring and um, becoming very unique in your creations i mean that's what we try mm -hmm. to do in in the restaurant that there must be a reason that people come to our restaurant because they can eat something here that they would not prepare themselves at home uh, and they cannot find in another restaurant. So um, first of all, at home, focus on technique and products. And second of all, if, you, if you're there already, uh, focus on flavor and, and your own unique um, creations. This was Joris Weidendijk. And now let's meet our second guest. Dia is a student of law at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Her dream is to become a corporate lawyer. And one of my goals is to see how I can branch everything 
for example, environmental law and sustainability into sort of implementing some concrete frameworks and seeing how we can actually work towards a more sustainable planet and community in the future. It's very interesting for us to, to hear from you how you suggest other students to influence their friends uh, or like their student community. You are also an ambassador for the Plant in the Future campaign. So maybe you can also give us some examples from this campaign. Definitely. So I think one of the biggest perks about my role as an ambassador for this campaign is definitely being a student. So food is definitely like a magnet for students. Free food, you'll see a swarm of students rushing towards you because it's free. Like, And in Hong Kong, everything is quite expensive, especially if you're coming here for exchange or anything like that. Hong Kong can be a bit of a shocker in terms of its prices and food options. Our local diet is quite heavily focused on meat and seafood products and oftentimes they're not very sustainably sourced or managed. So I think for me, my personal role is definitely to cook more and living on campus, you sort of build your own community of friends or just people you see or walk by around campus. And one way that I aim to bring everything together is cooking food, as I said, and using ingredients that are more sustainably sourced. So definitely playing into and supporting agroecological farming where you can have a more efficient sustainable and respectful way of using natural resources into making this really wholesome, nutritious meal for students. I think that's a very special experience in itself because you not only learn more and become more aware about the ingredients that you are using and how they come to be and the issues with like mass farming or inefficient use of natural resources, but at the end you reward yourself with this delicious meal And it tastes even better because you put so much love into it, so much research and just all of your effort and time. And it's a very wholesome experience to share that and bond with other people through this experience of food. So, you know, people say love knows no boundaries, but I also think food knows no boundaries. So, like, the possibilities are endless. on campus we also have common areas and kitchens where we can cook ourselves and we have a supermarket on campus but I think what's even better is going like going on adventures to wholesale markets fresh fruit markets and buying those resources instead so in high school I was a leader for this cooking club and one of this activities that we had one day was exploring these sort of fresh food markets and seeing like a more local and sustainable way of buying such ingredients And so I think doing that with my friends and then maybe cooking together on campus and doing that is definitely a way we can work towards and support planting the future. And do you have already uh, some of your uh, classmates that want to join the campaign along with you? Yeah, actually. And I really it makes me really happy because sometimes as a student, you're not quite sure if people are supportive of what you'd like to do or maybe they have different interests or they might not necessarily be interested in joining something, even if it differs from their passions. But for me, I'm very grateful to have a supportive network of people who are interested in doing new things and putting themselves out there. And in my personal like residential hall, we've already formed like this very nice group, like four people. And sometimes we do cook together. So I think 
definitely. Cooking is like the best thing you could possibly do. One of my friends hosted a Taco Tuesday. And out of nowhere, 120 people already came because it was free food. Wow. Yeah. So the power food has, especially for a college student, is immeasurable. It's priceless. So that is definitely one thing that I will definitely do. And we also do have Chinese New Year coming up. For my university, our Chinese New Year holiday is from the 9th to 15th of February. So another idea I had was exploring Hong Kong and finding more um, sustainable restaurants, oftentimes they're, they're more like they're restaurants where you can actually talk to the owner. They're more approachable. And so being in different environmental like NGOs or youth-led groups, I've already made some connections in these fields. And so I can always introduce my friends to them. And that's another experience that we can have actually going off campus and expanding our horizons in that way. You have listened to Dia Bashin. We got some tips from a chef and from a student on how we can influence our community. But what about farmers and rural communities? To have some inspiration on how to design an impactful project and create a successful and powerful network, I've called Luisa Vélez, based in the Pacific coast of Ecuador. Since I was 17, I have been dedicated to promoting participatory actions for creation of urban and rural linkages, climate resilience, and uh, strengthening of agri-food systems. Since last year, Luisa has been implementing the project called Using Women's Ancestral Montubio Culture to Strengthen Inclusive Urban Markets and Sustainable Diets. This project makes a bridge between eight rural and one urban communities. More than 100 students, youth and children from four educational centers and four different municipalities. In Ecuador, we have a, a lot of social and economic problems. Nearly two-thirds of women experience gender-based violence, with rural communities and facing additional challenges such as limited income opportunities and health issues like obesity due to dietary low diversity. To address, um, we've team-made up with our local slow food community to launch an initiative using women ancestral Montuvio culture to strengthening inclusive market, urban markets and sustainable diets. Our goal including empowering rural women in agroecological production, artisanal processing, and eco-efficient marketing, promoting a sustainable diet for their families, and disseminating the Montuvio heritage for a future generation, Thanks to the support of Straw Food and the Negroni Week Fund, Luisa was able to support the rural communities to establish their agroecological food gardens with seeds, tools and capacity buildings for the women. They are also organizing events and creating market channels for the surplus production. Our work is in rural communities, uh, principle, um, planting fruit, uh, vegetable, local fruit uh, and different Food, for example, tree. We work with analog forestry, for example. It's really diversity that the women share 
and their practices, ancestral practices associated to the Montuvio culture and the family practices, for example. The principal goal for, for this production is the consumption for the women and their families, but the additional product, we create connection with local fairs, uh, leading by women too. How important is it that they can sell directly the products to the consumers? The ladies uh, get a fair price for their product uh, with direct, with consumers um, coating or coating out the middleman of getting a bigger share of the renew, um, establish direct relationship with consumers for um, the women farmers can receive feedback on the quality uh, of their product. In addition to cutting the middleman and receiving direct feedback from the customer, another advantage of selling directly is that women can easily adapt the offer to the demand of the products. In Luisa's project, women get additional training on how to process raw products in order to increase and diversify their offer. And these recipes can also be adapted to the preferences of the local market. And the direct selling fosters the connection between producers and consumers, promoting the transparency and trust in the food system due, due to the knowledge of the practices and input that we applied during the production and, uh, or processing of the food. The impact of this project on the community is huge. First of all, producers and consumers have access to healthy, local and culturally appropriate foods. Then the women from the rural community recognize themselves with a bigger role in the community. They are not only mothers who need to provide food for their families, but they also participate actively in local policies. They have the chance to inspire other women in the community and they feel part of the change. Our project has had a significant impact on the community um, in several ways. For example, we have strengthened the capacity of 20, 24 Montuvio women in agroecological production and the preservation of their ancestral culinary culture. This empowerment has allowed the, these women to feel supported by various sectors which has contributed to greater community cohesion and the adoption healthier culturally appropriate diets. We are contributing to dignifying the role of women in food security and to developing sustainable economic opportunities for example with the, the sale the agroecological products for reduce the migration of young people to cities, that is a, a other problem really evidenced in, in the rural communities. This was Luisa Vélez. We're going to end this podcast with some precious practical tips on how we can get involved in our local food policies. To get the information we need, I got in touch with Yael Panzer, working for Slow Food with a focus on food policies.
I really like to work on the local dimension of uh, food policies because uh, it is one that is the closest to citizens and also to our slow food network. And I would believe that we can really have a big impact by changing things at the, at the local level. Can I ask you to give us actually a definition on what food policy means and also what you mean by a local food policy? So what we mean by food policy or better integrated urban food policy is a comprehensive and holistic approach to food systems in cities, uh, which address multiple challenges and opportunities simultaneously. Uh, the idea is to try to create a healthier and more sustainable and more equitable food system for all residents of a city. So the key characteristics of such an integrated urban food policies should be that it uh, should be comprehensive, meaning that it addresses all aspects of the food system from production to consumption. It should be holistic, meaning that it considers all the interconnections of different food system components. And it should be also collaborative or participatory, meaning that it should involve a wide range of stakeholders, uh, including uh, citizens, including businesses, community organizations, uh, as well as uh, individuals. So, If I try to say it in more simple words, uh, we can think of a sort of master plan for food for a city, which should make sure that everyone has access to good, clean and fair and sustainable food uh, in, a, in a joint and participatory way. This means that, let's say, in a city you would have like a um, sort of strategy from the municipality addressing food and agriculture, access to food and all of that, and maybe a series of laws or regulation, correct? Yes, that's uh, exactly it. Uh, most of cities actually do not have such a plan, but the idea is to push for more and more cities to have an integrated uh, urban food policy with the specific legislation to then implement it in reality. Uh, most cities, if you think about it, are already somehow working on food when it comes, for example, to school canteens, when it comes to the management of food waste, when it comes to education, or when it comes uh, to the distribution of food uh, to more disadvantaged people. However, even if they might have many of these specific actions, they rarely work in an integrated way. So there are separate actions, but they're not connected one to the other. Uh, so it's really important to think of, uh, the, of the food system as a whole, and because of that, to try to, to develop an integrated urban food policy. But have you come across any um, city that has this integrated food policy that maybe we can look at as an example? Yes, actually there are more and more cities committing to develop an integrated urban food policy. So uh, I will just mention the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact uh, because it is a pact among cities at the global level uh, with more than 200 cities that uh, have committed or already have an integrated urban food policy. So, for example, the city of Milan has one, but if we go to France, the city of Bordeaux has one, um, and many other examples. Birmingham has one in the UK. Um, so, if you look around, actually, there are more and more cities that are, are developing such plans and such strategies. Of course, then it is always a, a challenge for cities to commit the resources to implement the uh, goals, the targets, the objectives that they have set in their strategies. Uh, 
but uh, I think we're going into the right directions and indeed over 200 cities have officially committed to have uh, such, a, such a strategy for their, uh, for their residents. And yeah, so let's get to the uh, practical part. So um, with this podcast, we really want to give advice to our listeners on how they can live uh, following a slow lifestyle, but also how they can influence the community uh, they live in. So let's say that, um, let's take my case, for example, like I'm Valentina, uh, I'm also around like 30 years old, I live in Rotterdam, but I don't know much about food policy, I'm not really involved with the municipality in any way, so how can I start from scratch to get involved with my municipality and influence the local food policy here? That's a very, very good question. And indeed, we all start from different uh, levels of knowledge. So I would suggest to, the first step uh, for everyone is to educate yourself about your local food system and understand if there is a local food strategy um, in your municipality, in your city, in your region, etc. So first of all, understanding if there is a strategy and what is its objectives are. Uh, but there are many, many ways really to, to get involved. If we look at the more political side uh, and you want, for example, to take action on the legislation, you can see if there is a food policy council and try to get involved. Uh, or more simple ways are also simply to participate to public consultations on food that municipalities can sometimes start focus groups uh, uh, or advocate for legislative changes. Uh, but there are also daily actions that everyone can, uh, can do to influence the local food policy and the local food system without having to dig uh, uh, too deep into, into the, the policy and the legislation itself, simply by even supporting local farmers and food businesses who are already sort of making a vote. To, to the food system that we want to, to support. Of course, voting for decision makers and politicians, uh, for candidates who support healthy and sustainable food policies is already also a very good step. So make sure that you study the programs of uh, candidates uh, and then you support the ones that are mentioning food somehow. Uh, but you can also do more uh, local actions that touch you directly. So, for example, uh, you could look into the canteen of uh, your children or the canteen of your, your university and see uh, if it corresponds to, to our values as uh, slow food activists. And if it doesn't, uh, try to form a group at the local level to ask for a change in the, in the school canteens of your children or of your university or for the company that you're working for. So these are all very concrete actions that uh, everyone can, uh, can really take. Other things uh, can also uh, be getting involved in community garden and food production uh, in the urban areas. This is also a change that is uh, somehow political because it shows that we can also grow food uh, in cities in a, in a sustainable way. So there is plenty of opportunities, I think, to uh, try to influence and get involved uh, um, on urban food policies uh, across Europe and worldwide. Mm -hmm. Super. Thank you so much, Yael. And just um, a question to understand a bit better. Could you explain to us how normally the consultations or public consultations that you mentioned work? Uh, it really changes from place to place, uh, but I would say that in most cases uh, the best way is to check the municipality's website or social media 
to see if they're consulting on specific issues. Of course, if a city is already working somehow on food, it is much more likely that we'll also consult uh, the citizens on specific topics. Uh, if they don't have a food policy or they're not really interested in the topic, then uh, it's, um, it's very unlikely that they will uh, publish any consultation or focus group uh, on, the, on the topic, so you might have to find other ways to do that. But otherwise, uh, the municipal website and social media are the are, are the most direct ways that they use to to ask citizens what they think. You have listened to Yael Panzer. This episode was really inspiring and full of practical tips from different angles and perspectives. So I hope that you find it as useful as I did. A special thanks to all our guests, Joris Beidendijk, Dia Bashin, Luisa Veles and Yael Panzer for sharing their knowledge and passion with us. If you like this episode, I invite you to share it with your network and please send your feedback, comments and questions in our Telegram group. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao!